to listen to the next chapter of the riveting willful blindness. Thank you for joining. Consistently, thank you for joining. So um, I wanted to drop in this quick promo before we get too late. Um, this is of Naomi Wolf. In case you don't know her work, she's really prolific with civil liberties work with women and the body. So I wanted to just drop this in really quick and then we'll move right into the chapter work. It's not just the virus and it's not just the vaccine. It's a little bit of cruelty, a little bit of inequality, a little bit of discrimination, a little bit of masking children so they can't breathe, a little, just an injection, just another injection, just losing your job, right? We don't have America anymore. Today I sit down with author and columnist Dr. Naomi Wolf, author of The Bodies of Others, The New Authoritarians, COVID-19, and The War Against the Human. And now a CCP-style cruelty is something that we tolerate. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. So that actually was uh, a drop-in from um, an Epoch News producer, uh, Yanya Kellick, and he's really great. Uh, but that is a sample of what Naomi is like and what she's about. So I wanted to just drop that in there really quick. She's going to be with that AI show on Saturday at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hopefully you can catch it. I would really like it if you'd join us. So um, I'll just move right into what you're really here for, Willful Blindness. And this is Chapter 7, The Casino Diaries. Here we go. Labine's handwritten notes described senior big circle boys who were deeply feared. She looked at associations and rivalries. Her journal assigned nicknames and codenames to the bosses. We've decided to keep this journal to record the events that are transpiring in our casino. We are all concerned for our safety and we feel we need to document these activities for our own well-being. The boys have been working the tables for months now. The action continues to increase and the clients are spending more and more money every day. We feel the Baccarat pit is getting out of hand and the casino is ignoring our warnings. Staff are becoming more aware of the gangs that are now working amongst us. Supervisors are feeling intimidated and overwhelmed. The population of $500 players has grown substantially over the last few months. We have been looking into different crime units, the Combined Forces Asian Crime Investigation Unit, and the Canadian Secret Service. We decided that we should know who they are, but it is unlikely that we will turn to them as this is big business involving gangs. We are not sure how long this is going to last. We hope the casino will at least try to stop them. Da, da, da. In May 1997, Muriel Labine knew that she was seeing momentous changes in Richmond's Great Canadian Gaming Casino. She was a supervisor of dealers, a sharp-eyed grandmother from the suburbs of Vancouver. Her workplace seemed to be undergoing something like a merger. Sorry, I just lost my place there. Uh, or possibly a takeover. All that Labine really knew was that it was becoming perilous at work. Customers were coming in with black eyes, and some high rollers seemed to be concealing guns. A VIP gangster had threatened to kill a dealer, 
Some of the reasons for the arrival of this new violent clientele could be guessed at, but some were too deep to fathom. Labine had no idea she was on the front lines of a major geopolitical shift. In 1997, China took Hong Kong back from the British. Since 1984, when Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher had announced the handover, there was a flood of migration to the West, accelerated by the Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989. And China would take Macau, too, in 1999. As a result of the epochal shift from 1996 to 1998, a bloody turf war raged in Macau. No one was safe there. Dozens of gangsters, government officials, and innocent bystanders died. In a poetically tragic irony, in May 1997, the same month that the hit on Chip Tooth Coy's right-hand man had caused Macau's casino violence to arrive in British Columbia, the provincial government enacted a major shift in gambling policy. In that month, the NDP introduced baccarat tables for the first time, extended gambling hours, and increased bet limits. Overnight, the maximum bet had jumped from $25 to $500 per hand, and a 19 hundred percent increase. At some level, and for some reason, it could be related to the Shuifeng boss's gambling. Trade mission in 1994 to BC or Stanley Ho's wooing of BC politicians, or the major real estate investments by the Hong Kong tycoons and the Five Dragons, the government decided to bring Macau-style gambling to Canada. And days later, Muriel Labine noticed that the arrival of youthful gangsters that she dubbed the boys. To my mind, it seemed that through greed, naivety, willful blindness, or possibly corruption, Canadian politicians and businessmen had imported Macaulay's shady economy and its deadly gang war. Whatever the reason, it was an incredibly profitable market disruption. Just three months after Baccarat tables were introduced, revenue at the Richmond Casino had nearly doubled. Labine saw that most of the cash coming across the tables was in $20 bills. They were wrapped in elastic and carried in bundles of $1,000s or $2,000. Labine had worked at a bank before coming to the Richmond Casino in 1992. She knew what legitimate funds were coming in and going out of banks were supposed to look like, and most of the Baccarat cash coming into the casino did not appear to be coming from banks. It was coming from loan sharks. So Labine decided to dig deeper. She collected casino revenue and sheets and matched them against the shady transactions she saw with her own eyes. In May 1997, before the Baccarat changes took effect, Richmond's casino total revenue was $1,617,000. Most of it went to the B.C. government, and Great Canadian Gaming Share was $647,000. In June, after Baccarat was introduced, the Richmond casino's win surged to $2,490,000, and in July, the casino's take exploded to $3,035,000. Great Canadian share was $1,214,000. You could not mistake it. The loan sharks were now a primary economic driver. Staff started to call these young men who spent 10-hour days inside the casino human ATMs, and Levine realized they had essentially become her co-workers. 
but upper management did not seem to care. Levine was starting to suspect they were in on it, so she started to gather evidence and create records. She hoped to make a case so compelling that authorities would have to clean house. Like so many truth-tellers after NBC's casino industry, she failed. But in the process, Levine provided perhaps the most detailed account of how the Big Circle Boys infiltrated a significant portion of Canada's economy. And 20 years later, her records would make a difference. Levine agreed to share her records and story with me. And according to sources with knowledge of B.C. government decisions, my reporting for Global News on Levine's casino diaries, along with my colleague John Hua, was the factor that finally persuaded the B.C. NDP government to launch a money laundering commission of inquiry. At first, it was a mystery for Levine how cash magically arrived inside the casino and was converted into $1,000 betting chips in the hands of backrat VIPs. Management repeatedly told the floor staff that what they were witnessing was a unique cultural practice in the Asian community. It was not loan sharking. It was relatives and friends lending money to relatives and friends. But Levine's detailed journal, journal notes destroyed this corrupt rationalization. We are aware that there is more going on than one gang operating the tables. The Asian dealers in the casino security have slowly been feeding us this information. The boys have their own clients which they are catering to exclusively. They sit with the clients, providing anything they want, and mostly handing them large quantities of cash or chips when they run out of money. An average buy-in from one of the boys appears to be about $5,000. The shark carries $1,000 chips around with him until one of his clients requires them. We've been wondering where they managed to find these massive amounts of $20 bills. The well, it never seems to dry up. But occasionally, as on August 2, 1998, the well did dry up. That day, Levine recorded an unusual series of interactions between the boys and their clients. The boys are short on cash today. They seem to be scrambling to find money to give to the clients. Players are having a bad day today. The house is cleaning them out faster than they can, than they can get their hands on it. 3.30 p.m. The boys' cell phones are ringing away. They seem to be trying to find more money. 4 p.m. Elvis, a head loan shark who's been operating for quite some time at our casino, comes in. He's carrying a grocery bag full of money. He signals to the other boys to join him. They all stand at the concession stand, and Elvis opens the bag and begins to pass out bundles of $20 bills. The boys bring the cash back to the tables and begin transactions. 6.45 p.m. Some of the boys have gathered at the concession counter to tabulate transactions on the slip of paper. They leave the paper at the counter and return to work. We manage to get a hold of the card. It has Chinese characters on the left side and dollars amounts on the right side. The amounts read in quantities of 5,000, 2,000, 1,000. With the help of a Chinese dealer, we were able to determine the Chinese characters read the Iranian and the Japanese. Clearly, the characters that owe money. We alerted the casino's chief of security, and he prompt promptly requested the papers. Dot, dot, dot. Once Levine understood how the loan distribution networks worked, she wanted to know more. What was the hierarchy of these criminal operators? Where did the gangs come from? 
She confirmed the answer on August 27, 1998. Security informs us that one of the gangs is the Big Circle Boys. We confirm it with another member of security. We are still trying to figure out who the top individuals are. They seem to be shrouded by the others and always remain in the background. Levine's handwritten notes described senior Big Circle Boys who were deeply feared. She looked at associations and rivalries. Her journal assigned nicknames and code names to the bosses. Labine and her co-workers were too afraid to refer to these men by their real Chinese names. Plainly a top boss. Staff fear Colombo greatly, especially Asian staff. We were told by senior casino management months ago, lay off him. He is not someone you want to deal with. He recently disappeared. Rumor has it that he was arrested for counterfeiting in the United States. He stood only about five feet high, was balding, in his fifties, and had the most sinister look one could ever imagine. He was the only shark that was given free cigarettes. And what, he was once seen shaking hands and engaged in long conversations with the vice president of the casino. Most of the staff seemed highly intimidated. He was obviously one of those most respected sharks amongst the gangs. This was noticed by the treatment he received from the other boys. The question that Labine pondered was, Where did the never-ending piles of cash come from? The staff are becoming more aware of the amount of currency the boys are generating at the casino. The drops are in the hundreds of thousands, and it never seems to let up. It has certainly benefited the casino by having sharks operating the tables. It is common now to see men carrying handbags full of cash, and others who seem to feel it's safe to carry the money in plain brown lunch bag. Labine strongly suspected the loan sharks were laundering drug money and other employees claim to have direct knowledge. Name Redacted feels that strongly that heroin, not extortion, is the major source of income for the sharks. According to him, deals occur all the time, and are visible if you are paying attention. In public washrooms, according to him, on several occasions, he was witness to drug deals by the boys. This was an observation that was later corroborated in B.C. Supreme Court records. Confidential informants told police that Big Circle boys preferred to make drug transactions inside the casinos because if police caught them, they could claim the drug cash was gambling proceeds. Labine had already noted that senior sharks brought grocery bags stuffed with bundles of cash into the casino and distributed the funds to junior sharks, who then bought chips for their VIP clients. They did this by exchanging 20s handed to them by the senior sharks for 100s at the casino cash cage, and then they used the 100s to buy in for $1,000 chips at the baccarat tables. Yes, Sophie. The transaction procedure is known as money laundering to investigators, and also known as refining or coloring up currency because $20 bills used in drug transactions are exchanged for $100 bills, which are more acceptable for large banking transactions. And win or lose, the gamblers have to pay back the loan sharks with personal checks or property, including homes and cars. Labine continued to dig, trying to trace the hierarchy of the drug cash networks. 
Her journal says that according to a co-worker who was close to a senior loan shark, the gangster had claimed that a high-ranking big circle boy would have the responsibility of laundering $5 million per month for the cartel's heroin traffickers, and a senior shark would have have 40 to 50 boys working as runners to distribute heroin cash to high rollers. His task for the cartel was to return $3 million in laundered funds per month, but he was allowed $2 million in overhead for gambling losses. If this was true, and the information has not been tested in court, it suggests the Big Circle gang knew it would lose about half of its drug cash to the BC government and its casino operators. The runners working for senior load and sharks, according to Labine's journal entry, entry earned about $10,000 per month. But with all this drug cash slosh, sloshing through the casino, violence had to follow. September 1998. We have become more confident discussing the boys with various members of security. Another member of security confesses he fears confrontation with the boys. He says he is positive that they are carrying weapons. He states, quite frankly, I wish they would kill each other off. Security staff in Redmond, or Richmond Casino were tough men. Many of them had come to Canada from Yugoslavia, and some had military backgrounds. So if they feared the gangsters, the female Baccarat dealers lived in absolute terror. According to Labine's journal and my interviews with other Richmond Casino staff, it was especially staff from the Chinese-Canadian community who faced harassment and threats of violence. A pit supervisor was threatened by a Baccarat player, known simply as the Fat Man. The Fat Man is a high roller who associates with gangs. Certain members of management have informed us of their desire to remove him. However, higher management, out of fear and and or out of greed for the man's money, have opted not to. The threat was uttered to the pit supervisor was, I'm going to put a bullet between your eyes. Staff are outraged. September 5, 1998. The fat man wins $30,000 today. Mr. Money, another excessive high roller, loses over $30,000 in roughly 30 minutes today. The Lottery Corporation still seems to be unaware of these gangs. It was always our understanding that they are supposed to be the first ones to know about this kind of crime, and we are not about to risk our jobs to inform them. Dot, dot, dot. In just under two years, Muriel Labine and her circle of trusted co-workers had gathered an incredible pool of intelligence, seeing the gangs operate firsthand. In some ways, it felt like they were living in a parallel reality. Working with the gangsters in a strange way had become normalized. Some of the loan sharks were friendly and humorous. Some you wouldn't even glance at because they looked like they could kill in a second. But life went on inside the casino. Sometimes clients came in looking bruised up. Sometimes you saw gambling addicts, addicts shaken down or heard of clients robbed for their cash. Characters came and went, and you wondered if they were still alive. But you went to work and you brought home your paycheck. You sometimes felt a little bad inside when you went to sleep. But you woke up and you went to work again. Did the outside world have any idea of the rapidly growing narco economy that BC's government was taking a cut from? The Richmond Casino's secrets finally became a mainstream reality when a big circle boy named P Pretty Boy Meng was shot by another loan shark from the casino. 
the attempted murder unfolded in the back room of a Chinese restaurant in Vancouver as a table of gangsters played mahjong game with stakes in the tens of thousands. November of 1998, quote, The news articles roamed freely among the staff and were read by most everyone during their breaks. Mm, some of them were immensely overjoyed by the news, but we all feared that we would have to face this killer again should he return to the casino. Uh, we are now concerned at the potential for retaliation by rival gangs. The news article allowed us an eerie glimpse into some of the private life of Scarface. We learned that he was 35, married, and resided in a cozy neighborhood nearby. Much the same kind of neighborhood we all strive to raise a family in. Here was a gangster living a normal, wealthy life right under our noses. A fact that placed a reality check in our minds. These kinds of criminals are everywhere. We have to stand around hoping and praying we are safe from harm. We are in the line of fire more than any other individual in this predicament. The Vancouver Sun covered the case, opening a series of stories with this line. An attempted murder trial in B.C. Supreme Court this week has offered an unusual glimpse into the shadowy world of gambling and loan sharking among a small segment of the Lower Mainland's Asian refugee community. The Sun reported that famed Vancouver criminal lawyer Russ Chamberlain defended Hoi Sanyim, the man they called Scarface in Labine's journal. Chamberlain probed Pretty Boy Meng sarcastically. He asked how Meng how he could afford a $65,000 car when he only claimed an income of 3000 to 6000 per year from working in a kitchen and mowing lawns. Meng responded that his mother in China was in the car business, and she had provided him with a down payment. Chamberlain suggested to Meng that he was a heroin dealer and a loan shark for the Big Circle Boys, and that he used Vietnamese henchmen to collect debt from a victim at a Chinese restaurant near the Richmond Casino. Meng denied being a Big Circle Boy, but admitted that he arrived in Canada on a flight from Hong Kong in 1993 and that he went through customs with no identification papers. Meng said he claimed asylum in Canada because he had written some political slogans in Guangzhou where he worked at a bakery. A witness to the Mahjong shooting named Kat Hai Chan acknowledged during the trial that he had arrived in Vancouver and claimed a refugee status after destroying his immigration papers during the flight to Canada, but he denied that he had owed 200000 to another loan shark at the Richmond Casino, or that he had once lost 360000 in a gambling den in Vancouver's Chinatown. He told Chamberlain he didn't know what a big circle boy was. It's a criminal enterprise in Richmond and elsewhere involved in prostitution, drug trafficking, loan sharking, Chamberlain said. One of the objects of the Big Circle gang is to smuggle people. The star witness, though, was a woman named Betty Big Sister Yan. Yan testified that she saw Ho San Yim curse in the middle of a mahjong game and shoot Pretty Boy, Pretty Boy Meng, who she knew was a loan shark with Vietnamese bodyguards. Yang, Yan requested 
recanted her earlier testimony that Pretty Boy Meng owed her $10,000 prior to the shooting. And she denied that she was a loan shark and Big Circle gang member. But the trial heard about her path to Canada from Guangzhou and the familiar Big Circle gang autobiography. Upon arriving in Vancouver in 1995, she claimed refugee status, telling Canadian authorities that her father was a democracy activist who was politically persecuted. Chamberlain noted, though, that despite Yan's supposed fear of the Chinese Communist Party, she had worked for the Chinese government as a customs officer. And Chamberlain also got Yan to admit that while collecting welfare in, Ch in Canada, she somehow means to wear a $25,000 Piaget watch. Surprisingly, Yan's notoriety from The Sun's report in 1999 did nothing to stop her meteoric rise in the Vancouver's establishment. While laundering money for transnational narcos and testifying in an attempted murder trial, she was embraced at Vancouver's West Point Gray School, the elite academy where future Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was teaching French at the time of the Pretty Boy Meng trial. Reportedly, Yan's popularity at the school was due to her facilitating incredibly lucrative business with the international students from mainland China. And other elite Big Circle boys had children in the school as well. Big Sister Betty would still have a much larger part to play in Canada, though. She had a role in major diplomatic standoff with China, the case of Lai, a fat man, Chan Xing, a billionaire baccarat player and big circle boy associate who fled from a corruption probe carrying the secrets of China's most powerful men. Yan's stunning life as a triple Asian with connections to China's foreign intelligence operations in Canada would only become clear ten years later when she was shot dead while sitting in her Mercedes in a barren strip mall parking lot outside an underground casino in Richmond. Fabian Dawson, the province editor, got the scoop that laid Yen's ties to international espionage networks bare. In the Richmond Casino, though, by 1999, Muriel Labine had seen enough. The spotlight caused by Pretty Boy Meng's sh shooting quickly faded and it was back to business as usual. January of 1999, as we expected, the boys are back. As they begin to multiply again, it would almost seem hopeless for the police to intervene at all. Sharks have their own agenda and their way of handling the element called police. They seem to know that after a few weeks, the entire house cleaning project will cease. And it will be business as usual. In fact, at the rate they're returning, we'll have more than what we started with by month's end. We almost feel sorry for the police at this point. They seem to be helpless. The whole problem is far beyond our capability to cope with. And that is the end of that short chapter. Tune in tomorrow for chapter 8, the PLA Whale. That's People's Liberation Army. Chinese Army. So, um, thank you for joining and listening to this chapter 7. Remember to go look for Willful Blindness and go buy the book at Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com. Sam Cooper is a wonderful author and he deserves to be compensated for his labor. Thank you for listening.
Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio.